0: Good morning. I want to start off by sharing with you. Uh, some of you have seen this photo before on social media. About two years ago, uh, my, I came home from work, and I was met at the door by this beautiful little girl. She was, my daughter, Violet, was four years old at the time, and her older sister, Emily, had dressed her up like this because, um, due to her own request. And she met me at the door and asked, Daddy, will you marry me? <laughs> I know, even now when I think about it, my heart nearly like, feels like it's bursting. And I had to gently explain to her, honey, I'm sorry, daddy's already married. And she's kind of like, to who? And I was like, to mommy. And so we went through this whole process of questions that she had, which was great. We had these hard conversations. Okay, then can I marry my brother? And uh, trying to explain to her, well... Without getting overly complex and weird, uh, he's already part of your family. And so your husband is going to be someone that loves you, that loves Jesus, um, that you're going to add to your family. So your, your brother is already part of your family. You want to add someone new to your family. And so we went through all these questions. And, of course, we got to this point like, okay, when I, when I get married, well, is, is my husband going to live with us? And I was kind of like, hmm. Well, the way it works is that you will leave here and start your own home and your own family. And that, this was my favorite moment other than the greeting at the door, she comes and wraps her arms around my legs, just hugging me. I'd rather leave him. I want to stay with you. And I'm just like, yes, I'm doing my job right. (laughs) No, that's not doing your job right. But I find that uh, after having served in about 20 years of ministry, uh, that uh, adults likewise continue to have similar questions or confusion about things like relationships, singleness, About marriage, about divorce, and that without the rudder of scriptures to guide us, we tend to get caught up in the currents of our culture and what the world says about our relationship issues. And so this morning I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are in the middle of this series called Clear, where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Uh, if you're here for the first time and you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles right underneath the chairs in front of you, and those are a free gift to you. If you don't own one yourself, take that home, and that's what they're there for. Otherwise, the Scripture is going to be right up on the big screen as well. And we know in this series we've been seeing how the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church to remind them, instead of being blinded by the values of this world, to see clearly through your identity in Christ, that as you're loved, forgiven, transformed through the cross, that He will guide you and grow you into holiness and unity together. These were the dual themes that we've been talking about this year, something that makes us distinct from the world. And then He shows us practically what that looks like, lived out in things like issues of division and divisiveness, conflicts, sin, and last week we talked about sexuality. And today, Paul is going to take some time out you can see it's kind of like a Q&A session. The, the Corinthians have asked all these questions, and so he's going to answer their questions about sex and marriage. Now, what I want you to hear is this is not a comprehensive guide, a Christian guide to marriage, but instead these are very specific issues that came up in their culture, in their church at that time, but let's see how it might relate to us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, quote-unquote, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, uh, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So let's stop right there. What's happening is uh, in the culture of Corinth, sex outside of marriage, remember for those of you who were tracking with me last week, sex outside of marriage is completely acceptable accessible, and it's even considered spiritual through the practice of pagan worship with prostitutes. And we talked about this last time. And so in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians, don't just be swept up in the, the norms of your culture. Flee from sexual immorality and glorify God with your body because you've been bought at great price by Jesus's blood. And so here in verse 1, the Corinthians, they still have a question, though. And they write to them, basically the question is, and you see it in verse 1, it's in your uh, translation, it's probably in quotes. Uh, They're basically asking, well, is sex bad then? You just talked about all the sexual immorality in the world, all the ways that we entertain fantasies, sexual fantasies and activities outside of the covenant of marriage. Is sex in general bad? Is it more spiritual for me to abstain from sex? And many people misinterpret the Bible to mean that Sex in some ways dirty or sinful and that the purpose is just for making babies. That's a lot of people's impression of Christianity and that is false. We see in the Bible that God created sex, that he intended to make it pleasurable. We see in Proverbs chapter 5 verses 18 through 19 that he gives it as a good gift, a wedding gift to bond a marriage in the oneness of flesh that we talked about last week in chapter 6 verse 16, to experience unity and intimacy together for an entire lifetime. In verse 2, because though of our temptation to use and abuse it in immoral ways, Paul counsels those of us with sexual desire to find expression and satisfaction in the right place in the covenant bond of a marriage between a man and a woman. God's intended design for both marriage and sex since the very beginnings of mankind. We saw this last time when we were looking at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. But what he's not saying is that sex is just about gratifying our own desires. We see in verses 3 and 4, not only is sex a gift to fully enjoy, but it's also a joy that we are to fully give because your body doesn't belong just to me but it belongs to my spouse. That's the idea of what it means to become one flesh. Now, some men have taken this passage and twisted it in such a way to justify my right as a man to demand sex from my wife. But I want you to pay attention to what is the command to men in verses 3 and 4? Husbands should give. And that for husbands, that you don't have authority over your own body, your wife does. And I want you to understand how radical this is in the Corinthian culture back in the first century, because instead of treating women as property or as less than men, which was common at that time, that God has given authority and equality for sex in marriage. And so when we read this passage, and I want to particularly speak to the men, that this is not permission to be oppressive or sinful or abusive. It's an opportunity to be humble and giving and serving. So, in marriage, some of us, we use sex for gratification, our own gratification, and that's part of what we're addressing here. And then others of us, sometimes we use sex for manipulation. We withhold it as leverage to get something or to punish someone. And so, Paul says in verse 5, do not deprive each other in marriage except when you agree to temporarily fast from sex in order for you to focus your heart, your desires, your, your mind on worshiping God instead. But then you're to return to enjoying each other to protect your marriage from the temptation of fulfilling it in alternate or immoral ways. And so the point here in this part of the passage is that you and I, we are to receive sex in marriage as both a blessing and a responsibility to serve another person. That sex is not sinful. It's wonderful. That it's a gift from God. To be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the covenant before god of marriage and that as we do that it's not about what can i take to lord it over my spouse but what can i give to love them and serve them as my spouse and so i want you to start off this morning by asking yourself the question am i using sex for my own gratification or am i using sex for manipulation to get And in both cases, to get what I want at the expense of another. And how do I need to grow more into God's design for sex and marriage as both a blessing and as a responsibility? Well, Paul, Apostle Paul, are you saying that being married then is better than being single because you get to enjoy all the benefits and blessings of sexual intimacy? Let's look in verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, Paul. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So in verses 6 and 7, Paul is not saying that you have to get married. When he talks about in the previous passage, he's telling them, I'm not saying you have to get married. I wish that all of you had the same spiritual gift from God that I, Paul, have, which is celibacy. But he knows that you may not have that same kind of spiritual gift. And I want you to notice in this passage that there are three type of single people, right? There's those with the spiritual gift of celibacy, And that we're not just talking about uh, supernatural freedom from sexual desire, although it may manifest that way. But the gift of celibacy sometimes is just, I'm content in Christ. I'm content to remain unmarried. In verse 8, Paul also speaks to those who don't have that that spiritual gift, that they have a normal God-given desire, but by the grace of God, through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, they're able to exercise self-control, to refrain from satisfying that want of sexual intimacy and choose singleness. And then in verse 9, there are those for whom singleness is a temporary season, that they should marry, Paul says, because a lack of intimacy would be a stumbling block into sexual immorality for them. And so, in this passage, we honor marriage because it's a good gift from the Lord, but our culture and even the church today has sometimes wrongly elevated marriage as if that is life's ultimate fulfillment and it becomes an idol that we worship yes marriage is good but it's not god it's not meant to be your ultimate source of joy and meaning in life and so we need some perspective like jesus talks about in matthew chapter 22 verse 30 that marriage it does last for a lifetime but it's temporary it's not eternal. In that passage, Jesus addresses, like, will you be married in heaven? And he very clearly explains to those who are listening, no, that that's just a temporary state in this lifetime. So in a culture where the, is portrayed, marriage is portrayed in movies and media as if it's the be-all and end-all of all things, it's easy for us to adopt a very skewed perspective as if while I'm being single... That I'm less than other people. Some of you know that I didn't get married till later on in life. As I kind of crept up in my late 30s, approaching 40, like it's kind of like I could feel that that pressure, like is there something wrong with me? Do people think there's something wrong with me? Or for us to feel like maybe I'm failing to achieve that required milestone in adulthood or in life. And that can lead to a lot of discouragement and despair. But in verse 8, what does Paul say? To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's their cross to bear, to remain single as I am? No. Because misery loves company, just, so just endure your singleness till you die? That's not what Paul says. He says that I say it is good to remain single as I am, that it's noble, that it's valuable, that it's beneficial, that it's honorable. And so I want you to see that the Bible tells us marriage is not to be an idol and singleness is not a curse that just as marriage is a good gift from God, so is singleness. And so the point in the second section of Scripture is whether you are called to singleness, you chose singleness, you're temporarily single, we want to receive singleness as a good gift from God. And we need to all agree on that as a church. And we'll talk more about this next time in the next passage about how in singleness a blessing it is, that we get to love and serve God. But what we want to recognize this morning is that singleness is not emptiness. It has purpose to it for kingdom pursuits without the distractions and complications that come along with marriage. Okay, Paul, so singleness is good too. But if you're saying that it's spiritually advantageous to be single, then should I get out of my marriage? This is what the Corinthians are asking, not me, all right? Verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. To peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So in verse 10, Paul talks about in marriage between followers of Jesus, he says, there is a very clear command from God. This is not Paul's opinion. He says, this is the Lord, not I. A command from God, not Paul's opinion do not divorce. And we see from Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. It's because there's this oneness bond of marriage that we talked about last week. And he, Jesus says, what God has joined and bound together in a covenant, covenant, let no man separate. And so there's a very, very clear command there. But in verse 11, there's also grace. That if you do separate, then you should either look to reconcile with your spouse or remain unmarried, as Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, lest you commit adultery, except in cases, Jesus says, where that marriage covenant has been broken by sexual immorality. But now, you can hear the Corinthians' questions. This is not actually Paul's main focus. All the believers there already had, were familiar with that idea that in Christianity, there was this bond that, Jesus, that God has called us to from the very beginning of mankind, that marriage was a lasting covenant. But then somebody asked, well, what if we got married before we met Jesus, and you know, we have this pagan wedding, and then I I came to follow Jesus, is it unholy for me to stay in a marriage with somebody who's not a Christian? And so in verses 12 and 13, he he says, I, not the Lord, he's saying that there's no direct instruction from Jesus and his word, but the suggestion here, the principle is the same, that if they are willing to stay with you, your non-Christian spouse, then don't divorce them. Now, I want to take this moment to address, like sometimes people will take this and say, aha, see, there's nothing wrong with being dating or marrying somebody who's not a Christian. This is not an excuse to date or marry someone who doesn't love Jesus, worship Jesus, and follow Jesus if you do. Because we'll see later in verse 39 that he tells the single people to marry in the Lord. In other words, to marry somebody who's a fellow believer in the family of Christ. And in fact, Paul will write to them again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, another letter, do not yoke yourself with somebody who is an unbeliever. Don't have partnership in intimacy and closeness with somebody who doesn't share the same values, same worship, same priority of Jesus as foremost in your life. But he says in verse 14, if you are already married and that's what happened, and then you came to Jesus and then this marriage, is this marriage unholy, Lord? No, he says stay in it because when you do, you're making your spouse and your kids more holy. Now, what that's not saying, because sometimes people misinterpret this passage, is it's not saving your wife or your husband or your kids. They're not automatically saved because you are. It's only by their own faith in Jesus and His work on the cross that they can experience salvation. Yet, from the overflow of Jesus' blessing and his grace on your life, they too can experience more of Jesus, more of his presence, more of his provision, more of his protection, and that that grace might move them to even believe and receive Jesus. And we know that that's what Paul's talking about here because the reality, Paul says in verse 15 and 16, is that you're not going to be able to control, though, if they ever come to faith in salvation. So, if that spouse leaves you, because of your faith, because of your life in Jesus, God also releases you. You're no longer bound by this broken covenant. He he says, instead, you're called to be at peace with God's calling in your life. And I want you to catch this, because this is the theme of this entire passage, that even if an unbelieving spouse dissolves your marriage, to be at peace with where where God has brought you to. And so, the principle in this section is that we are to receive and remain in marriage as a lasting covenant before God. That's the overall emphasis. But there's also grace to remain separated when an unbelieving spouse abandons you. Okay, Pastor Josh, we get that. It's easy to read in the passage. But you don't know how painful my marriage is. I want you to hear that God has tremendous grace for you when that marriage covenant has been broken by immorality abuse abandonment that God can bring you grace and freedom and release from a sinful situation and the point of the passage isn't to condemn you because I know some of us have gone through divorce or or maybe struggling with those issues now but the point here is to emphasize in Greek culture and Roman culture, and I would argue even in American culture and Corinthian culture, that divorce is too often the answer, and it discounts the power of God and the presence of Christ to save a marriage, even in the worst cases of adultery. Let's pull up the next picture on the big screen. This is a Bob and Audrey Meisner. He is the pastor of a church. They have three kids, And it looked like a seemingly picture-perfect marriage for over 17 years, which was nearly destroyed when, during a season of brokenness and loneliness, Audrey had an affair. Now, through the conviction of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, she cut it off completely and confessed it to her husband. And many people would have counseled Bob, you know what, biblically, you have a way out. She was unfaithful. And so what you should do is take the kids and leave. And in fact, many of his friends said, you know what, angry for him on his behalf, you should expose what she's done and shame her for it. But as God guided them to meet together with a older, wiser mentor, Bob was expecting this godly pastor, this this mentor of his, to rip into his wife. But instead, what he did was he challenged Bob as a man, as a husband, as a father, as the spiritual leader of his family. I know you're angry and upset. I know you want to bring this before the board and the church, but that is not the love of God. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 talks about how God, instead of exposing us, covers us, covers our sin and protects us. As a of went through this conversation. Bob was like, okay, he's starting to feel convicted because he really loves and trusts this wiser mentor. Uh, Where where should I sleep tonight? Should I sleep on the couch? Should I go sleep in a hotel? And this mentor said to him, you're going to get right back into your marriage bed, and you and Audrey are not going to spend even one night apart because you will not participate with the spirit of divorce. Now, Bob, he's very honest, you know, left to my own devices, I would have blown up the marriage. I would have made it all about me and how I've been wronged, ignoring the heartache that has brought my wife to this point and that she was experiencing now in the midst of all this shame. And recognizing that if I had exposed her and shamed her, two bad decisions aren't going to make a right one. And so I'm so thankful that this mentor did not let me make a decision that I would regret for the rest of my life. And so by the grace of God, They worked on their marriage together. But then things took a turn for the worse. Audrey discovered that she was pregnant, and the child was not Bob's. And so Bob was wrestling in his heart, will I be able to love this baby as my own? Will he forever be a reminder of that betrayal? And he was very honest. It's not being a magical Christian and everything, I just do the right thing. He struggled with this for months. They didn't know what to do. And and months into the pregnancy, the Holy Spirit convicted his heart, remembering that wisdom that his mentor had given them about covering instead of shame. And so together, him and his wife decided to tell their children, their other children, their three other kids, the truth. And so what he did was he took a blanket off of their their bed, the bed that they shared, in front of his kids, covered her in it, wrapped her up in it, head to foot in this blanket, wrapped his arms around his wife, and he looks his kids right into their eyes and said, this is what Jesus does when we make a mistake. He comes to us, he covers us, he wraps his arms around us, and he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so he spent several minutes speaking his love and devotion for their mother, his wife, that we belong together. I am not going anywhere. We are a family. And then a few days later, little Rob Meisner was born. They named this baby, who is not biologically his son, after Bob. And the amazing part of this story is that Fifteen years later, this family is whole because they continue to honor God by honoring this covenant of marriage. And so I want to encourage you, between believers, if you are two believers in a marriage, you need to take, you know that if you're in premarital counseling with me, I talk about this frequently, you need to take divorce out of your vocabulary. You need to make a ruthless commitment to stop trying to fix and control your spouse and instead surrender them to the care and conviction of God. Let God do the surgery. And instead, you come before the Lord and you give Jesus permission to perform spiritual surgery on your heart, on your habits, on your sin so that the focus is less on did I marry the right person and more on how do I become the right person. And so I want to challenge you. How do you need to honor God? By honoring the marriage covenant. And how do you need to honor God? By honoring your covenant, by honoring your spouse. And I want to speak to those of you who are suffering and in pain, that God is gracious and God releases. If there's unrepentant sin and pain in that marriage, But I also want you to hear that God is also powerful enough if we are humble enough to trust Him and obey Him and to go through the heartache of humility and change together. Okay, Paul. Starting to get a picture, a little bit mixed up. Not sure, marriage better, singleness better. You said they're both good. Don't break marriage covenant. But you know, the truth is some of us are in pain. Some of us wish that we were married, some of us wish that we were single, what are we supposed to do with that? Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule to all the churches, not just Corinth. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Huh? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Pay attention to how many times he says called in this passage. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity." For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave to, of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condi- condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So, Paul, what are you doing here? seems like you took a wrong turn down uh, towards Tangent Town. But he is still addressing this issue that the Corinthians are asking. Wouldn't my life be better if I changed my marital status, if I became married, or if I became single? And Paul says in verse 17, to lead the life that God has assigned to you, that God has called you to. And I want you to understand what's happening here is kind of a summary of all the questions the Corinthians are asking is, if I change my temporary external conditions, would that help me be closer to God? Would that make my life more fulfilling? They're changing. They want to know, Paul, can you tell us about changing our temporary external conditions instead of living out their internal and eternal identity in Christ where they're already called, wherever they're already called, how do we know that's what Paul is talking about? Because he starts talking about how this general principle is going to apply to other areas of life. So what seems like a tangent in verse 18, you have to picture in your mind these Corinthian Gentiles, they've heard about this Jewish Old Testament practice of circumcision. If you don't know what that is, go look it up on your own. I'm not going to explain it to you this morning, but it's a symbolic gesture of being set apart for God by symbolically cutting off sin and that we're paying the price for that sin through the shedding of blood in that surgical procedure. And so, some Gentile Corinthians are asking, should I? Would that increase my spiritual credibility with God? And then, there are some Jewish believers, uh, men who were already circumcised, who say, now that I'm a Christian, should I get the first century equivalent of scar removal surgery, right? They did have that back then. And what Paul says is in verse 19 through 20, it's not more spiritual or more fulfilling by changing your external condition, but by obeying God, including remaining in the condition that God has called you to, that somehow in that situation, whatever situation you're in, that circumcised or uncircumcised, that you can discover a God-sized purpose in living for Jesus, living out Jesus, where He has already placed you. You catch that? Not changing the external conditions, but because of your internal condition in Christ, being able to be where you're already at. And so, he gives another example, right? In verse 21 and 22, this is not kind of random Paul stuff. He's saying, not only is life not about your religious ritual status of circumcision, it's not all about your social status, about whether you are slave or free, because if you are a slave, you are free in Christ. If you are a freedman, you are servants and slaves to Christ. And so that in Christ, you, whether a slave or a freedman, are treated as equal. One is not more valuable than the other. And unlike historical inaccuracies of interpreting or twisting Scripture, this is not saying that slavery is acceptable. Because Paul says, if you have the opportunity to be free, take that. Because verse 23, Jesus has already paid it all. He's already bought back your life at an enormous redemption price at the cross so that people belong to God, not to other people. And so there is grace to be legally free in this life. But remember that you are ultimately free forever in the life to come in Christ. And his point here, he's trying to tie it all back into this, because we know that he's still talking about marriage and relationships because he's going to continue talking about it next time in the next passage. But verse 24, the big idea that wraps up this whole passage together is that wherever you are in marriage or in life, find your fulfillment by remaining in God's calling instead of just changing your external conditions and mistaking that for God's blessing. That if I'm just married, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I, have, then I know I'm closer to God. If I was just single again and not weighed down by all the complications and mess of a sinful spouse, then I would be closer to God. I'd be experiencing God's blessing. Now, you should be kind of hearing this this way. If you're anything like me, it sounds a little bit like, well, that's just your lot in life. You just got to suck it up for Jesus. <laughs> that's not what Paul means. He's trying to tell us that there's dignity and value and the purpose of your life is not fulfilled in being married or in being single, in dating or in divorce. It's found in Jesus, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. And so the real question is, are you finding your fulfillment in Him? Are you willing to trust Him and follow Him into the place that He has already called you? there's a man named uh, Glenn Wolf. He died alone in Los Angeles, uh, age 88. No one ever came to claim the body. In fact, the city had to pay for him to, to have his body buried in an unmarked grave. Now, that's pretty sad, but it's not unusual in big cities um, where people tend to fall through the cracks. But what is unique about this man was that he holds... The Guinness Book of World Records, he holds the record as being the most married man in the world. What I mean is that he has gone through 31 marriages. So I want you to picture this. 31 times he was asked, Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, forsaking all others for as long as you both shall live? 31 times Glenn said, I do. But it never quite worked out that way for him, did it? And in this news article I read, he left behind a number of living ex-wives, 40 children, innumerable grandchildren, and even some great-grandchildren. And yet he still died alone. No one ever claimed his body. You see, this man spent his entire adult life hunting for happiness by oscillating back and forth between marriage will make me happy, nope, singleness will make me happy, nope, marriage will make me happy. He was looking for something that he never found, and he ended up dying alone. So I want you to be honest with yourself a little bit this morning. Fill in this blank. When it comes to what do you think about relationships, If I only had fill in the blank in relationships, then I'd be fulfilled. If I only had romance, if I only had independence, if I only had a companion, if I only could have a fresh start, then I'd be fulfilled. But what you'll really discover is the same lesson as Glynn, that you will never be satisfied by that. Marriage and singleness, they're both good gifts from God. But changing your relational status on social media is not the answer. Really, Jesus is. Because instead of changing what's temporary and external, he transforms us with what's internal and eternal. He became a man who lived sinlessly, died sacrificially, rose victoriously to give us a life that is better, that is fuller, that is forever with Him if we will trust and follow Him, even, or should I say especially, in the relational space that you find yourself today. So how do you need to humble yourself to God's will and God's Word? Many of us say that we are followers of Jesus, that we're Christians. And yet our mentality when it comes to relational status or marital status is that, well, I can't just respect God and then do whatever I want, pursue whatever I want, date or divorce whoever I want. It's not just that I make family plans and then ask God to bless it, but in humility, independence, in trusting Him as a good Lord and Savior, do I seek Jesus and His calling in whatever relational situation that I find myself today. I want you to be clear about marriage. It's wonderful. You get to enjoy the blessing of sex and then to be the blessing by loving and serving your spouse. It's not better than singleness, in singleness where you get to enjoy and invest more in Jesus and His kingdom without the distractions and complications of marriage. It is holy. Uh, If you're Single, you cannot date somebody who's not a Christian and then convince them that Jesus is the most important thing in your life as you willfully disobey Him. It is lasting. It's a covenant that binds us, that we make with God, not just the other person, for a lifetime. But it's also gracious when that covenant's been broken by immorality and abandonment. God can and does release people. But whatever relational condition God has called you to remember your dignity, your value, your purpose in life is not fulfilled in being married, in being single, or being divorced. It's found in Jesus. And so I dare you to follow him into wherever he has placed you. And maybe you'll find that he is a faithful, fulfilling God forever. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. It is sometimes very hard to hear because the truth is everyone sitting in this room, though we might be cleansed by Jesus and his blood, and we know it's enough, and we know if he forgives past, present, and future sins, yet our selfishness often comes up or our hopelessness when we are lonely. And so, Lord, I ask for your mercy this morning. What we wouldn't hear is condemnation for the ways that we've messed up being single or being married, but instead that you would turn our hearts back towards you. If we have sin that needs repenting, that you welcome us with open arms if there's loneliness or hurt because we're single, and sometimes even when we're married, that you are a God who extends your arms in grace, in love. We want to receive whatever good gift you've given us, whatever calling you've given us relationally in this life. It doesn't mean we're not proactive. if. You're leading us in a certain direction it's not wrong to ask you for good things but may you be our heart's fulfillment and so we invite you to come come into that place where there is hurt where there is secret pain where there is secret sin give us the courage to come before you this morning And not just accept our lot in life, but to receive the incredible gift of being drawn close to you and experiencing your purpose, your beauty, your transformation, wherever you've called us today. In Jesus' name.